It might seem surprising to you that First Peter, this book we've been working through now for quite a while, is one of my favorite books in all the Bible because it deals over and over again with suffering and with how to get along in a hostile culture. And I'm a dyed-in-the-wool, committed, card-carrying Christian hedonist, which means I live to maximize my longest and highest pleasures in this and in the coming world. And yet, when you take those two together, the quest for maximum, longest-lasting pleasure and a book that's about suffering and about living in a hostile culture, it isn't surprising that that would be one of my favorite books. At least it's not surprising to people who, who've lived long enough to discover what Paul Brandt, the missionary surgeon who lived most of his life and ministered in India, wrote in his uh, recent book called Pain, the Gift That Nobody Wants. He said, I have come to see that pain and pleasure come to us not as opposites, but as Siamese twins. Strangely joined and intertwined, nearly all my memories of acute happiness, in fact, involve some element of pain or struggle. Now, if that's true, then it wouldn't seem surprising to say that I am bent on maximizing my happiness and I love the book of First Peter. I have never heard anybody say, I never expect to hear anybody say, unless they are the most superficial of all people, the deepest, rarest, choicest, most satisfying pleasures in life have come to me in extended seasons of ease and earthly comfort. I've never heard anybody say that. It's always the opposite. It's like Samuel Rutherford who said... I accept being put into the cellars of suffering because the great king keeps his wine there. Or like Charles Spurgeon who said, those who dive in the seas of affliction bring up the rarest pearls. And being a Christian hedonist, I am bent on drinking that wine and owning those pearls if it takes going to those cellars and going into that sea. And First Peter is about that cellar and those seas and that wine and those pearls. And they are not at odds. And all of you know that. You know that. You've all lived the real life. And you know that Paul Brandt is right. You do not try to maximize your earthly comforts if your life is going to have the deepest, rarest, most lasting pleasures. You know there's no correlation. There is no correlation between wealth and joy. There's no correlation between earthly ease and lasting joy. Those two things don't fit. It's the seller's of suffering for righteousness and walking with God through the dark paths of faithfulness that in the end and often along the way bring the sweetest, deepest discoveries of who he is. Bernie May, just a year ago, I believe, maybe it was two now, stopped being the leader of Wycliffe Bible Translators and handed over the reins to another. But while he was still 
the leader. I used to read his letter every month as it came in the Wycliffe Bulletin. And uh, he told the story in one of those letters, I think it was 1990, he told this story of just recently going overseas to a Muslim nation to visit a young couple. Had three kids under five years old. And uh, they were ministering to a group of, of Muslims in a people group with 100,000 people. And uh, they had no Bible, their language was not in writing, and they uh, didn't know anything about Jesus. This couple was there, and he went to visit them. And he saw pox marks on the, the little teeny baby's legs and arms, and he asked if the baby had chicken pox. And the mother said, no, those are ant bites. We can't keep the ants off of him. But eventually he'll become immune to them like the rest of us have. And then Bernie May wrote this. In a moment of honesty, she confessed that she felt guilty because she was suffering from stress. Stress. She and her young husband came here from mid-USA. That's where we live. Now they live in a place where the temperature is above 100 degrees most of the year. The children are covered with ant bites. A war is going on close by. Their helpers are in danger for being their friends. Many in the villages are suffering from hunger and disease. They can't even let their supporters know what they are doing so that they can pray for them since they're in a critical area. And she feels guilty because she's under stress. I told her that she had every right to feel stressful. I had only been here three days, not three years, and I was beginning to come unglued. Yet, he writes, this dedicated couple are laughing and joking and filled with the joy of the Lord. That's what First Peter's about. And that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of person you want to be. I, I don't believe there's a single person in this room to, who would say, no, I'd rather grumble. I like being known as a sourpuss. I don't like to rise above circumstances and be joyful in God when things are hard. Nobody here is saying that. I know I've got some common ground with you here. You want to be that kind of person. And that's what First Peter's about. That's what this text is about. This text is about not only the possibility of being that way, it's a command to be that way. And then there are six reasons for how you can be that way. Look at the command first, verse 13. It says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. There's the command. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. I'm going to put in a parenthesis here that, I'm, that I, I got from the first service, okay? People always say things to me as they go out the door and I kind of plow them back into the second service. Well, this, this comment happens every time I preach on suffering. Every time. And uh, it's inevitable, and I accept it, so let me clarify. The question is, isn't this text just about persecution? And yet, as you preach, you kept kind of alluding to other kinds of suffering, like losing a job, or uh, uh, getting cancer, or having a divided home, or something. And it didn't seem like it was in the text. Okay, here's the answer to that. Uh, this text is mainly about persecution and suffering because you are a Christian, but I hope what you hear is that God is sovereign and therefore God governs all suffering. I'm going to say this. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I have to, to explain this. He even governs Satan. Therefore, anything 
that comes into your life by way of pain, hurt, negative, obstacle, in the path of obedience is designed for what this stuff is designed for. I'm going to talk about why Christians suffer and how they can rise above it. But the same truth applies to whether or not the suffering is coming from inside, from a disease, from a broken clutch, from you name it. Whatever is tending to tempt you to be angry at people and God, that is under God's sovereignty an opportunity of testing to prove and refine your faith just as much as if you've been hit in the face by a person that hated you because you were a Christian. So the point is, while the text deals explicitly, most of it, with persecution, the principle under God's loving sovereignty over our lives and how we handle that is the same as to whether the suffering, as when the suffering comes from another source. Close parenthesis. If you've got a problem with that, then you come to me after the second service and it'll make its way into a later sermon. And I'll keep learning how to do this better. The command is there, keep on rejoicing to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. I think any suffering in obedience to and union with Christ is sharing in the sufferings of Christ if it's a hangnail. All right? If you are walking in the path of obedience with Jesus and you get a stubbed toe, he cares and it is suffering with him and it tends to make you murmur and be angry and therefore it's a big deal. Not as big as if you were going to die, but it's the same principle. Okay. This text says don't just rejoice because of, I mean, in spite of, but because of suffering. Now that's... As jolting. This is not kind of a little piece of advice this morning from the power of positive thinking. Let's make the best of it. Let's rise above it. Let's be heroic. Let's uh, have some mind over matter here. That's not the point. The point is, you're being called to do something that is so abnormal and so countercultural and so against human nature. It is supernatural and you can't do it and it isn't for your honor. When it happens, it's because the spirit of glory and of God has come upon you and enabled you. And that's true in those little tough things day by day. And that's true in the big dangerous things. You can't do it. But God can and he gets the glory. Aliens and exiles are what we're reading about here and how they respond to suffering. Count it all joy, James said. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. Can you believe that? I mean, maybe he should have said, count it a little joy. Count it, there is a little joy in it. Or maybe some way down the line, joy will come from it. But why this massive, count it all joy? What, how do you handle that? There's only one way that I know of that that can be not stupid or not foolish. One reason. God. There's a God. And if there's a God, and if he's sovereign, and if he rules Satan and suffering and me and causes kingdoms to go up and go down, have you been reading Jeremiah these weeks, moving through the Bible? One chapter after the other, how God up, down Moab, up, 
down Edom, up down Assyria, up down Babylon. He reigns. That's Jeremiah's command and his belief and his message to us. And if he reigns over all the nations and over all the circumstances and over my cars and my children and my wife and my marriage and my job and my sickness and this church, and he's good, it's not stupid to say, count it all joy. He loves you. Well, it's not easy, but it's there. And this text, verses 12 to 19 has in it six reasons why it's not stupid to count it all joy. Six reasons for why you can obey the command of verse 13 to keep on rejoicing. And please don't think that that is a glib, light, superficial, trite, put a smile on when you hate it, inside, outside thing. Joy isn't like that. It'll be clear what is meant as we go. Reason number one, keep on rejoicing because the suffering is not a surprise, but a plan. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you or among you, which comes upon you for your testing, purposeful, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It isn't strange. It isn't absurd. It isn't meaningless. You don't tear your hair out and say, there's no point if you believe in God. Verse 19, you'll see how it has a point. Let those who suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator. It is according to the will of God when we suffer. God wills it. Even when Satan may be the immediate cause of it. We know that from the book of Job. We know it from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where the thorn in the flesh was what? A minister of Satan. Doing what? Humbling him and making him holy so that he would love the glory of Jesus Christ. Because Christ was overruling Satan's minister and turning Satan into a means of Paul's holiness. That's the kind of God we have. God reigns over Satan, over suffering, and therefore, it's okay to resist your suffering in prayer and pray against it and ask God to remove it like Paul did. And sometimes he does, miraculously and wonderfully. And sometimes he doesn't for holy and wise purposes because he loves us. But his sovereignty is not called into question by the immediate causality of sin and Satan. So many passages of Scripture show that God is overruling these things constantly for our Great good. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. You see the purposefulness in suffering now? This is God's judgment upon the church in this text. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, Christians, whom he loves with all of his heart and gave his son to die for, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel. So the judgment of God is moving through the earth and it begins with churches. And the judgment of God comes upon churches. Why? Because he hates us? Not at all. But because he loves us so much, he will not spare us anything to get out of us what he hates. Did you get that? 
It's not because he hates us when a church or a Christian goes through times of darkness and trial. It's because he loves us so much he will spare us nothing to get out of us what he hates, namely sin. And we are to count it under the ashes, under the shadow, under the frown, joy. Not the kind of joy that heel clicks and leaps in that moment, but that as in Micah 7, 7 says, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. He who has brought me into this darkness will plead my cause and vindicate me in time. The Christian life is not a simple thing. It's not a simple thing. It's a complicated thing. It's a glorious thing. It's a deep thing. Verse 18, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Believers pass through and are saved by the skin of their teeth. Namely by Jesus. So much has to be burned up within us. We're all imperfect. Everybody's imperfect. There'll be no imperfect people in heaven. And a lot of God's process of getting us ready for heaven is to burn the hell out of us. And he will get it out. And we will be found blameless at the judgment day. Solzhenitsyn, remember the novelist, gone back to his homeland now. It's a moving thing some months ago when that happened. He was in prison years ago in Siberia. Wasn't a Christian yet. He's suffering. And Boris Kornfeld, a Jewish doctor, was sitting with him one night. He was also in prison, and Boris had become a Christian. And he spent late into the night talking with Solzhenitsyn, he says, and gave his testimony about how this Jewish doctor had become a Christian. And then he was beaten to death in his bed that night. And Solzhenitsyn wrote, His last words lay upon me as an inheritance. It was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Bless you, O prison, for having been my life. Bless you, O prison, for having been my life. Isn't that amazing? The judgment of God moves through the world. It'll come to a crescendo one of these days, but it's moving through the world. It's moving on churches, hundreds, Thousands of churches coming under the judgment of God. When it moves in a church, it's meant for purity because he loves us. And when it moves on the world, it has one of two effects. Either it awakens like it did for Solzhenitsyn or it condemns and destroys if it is resisted and does not bring people to repentance. But for the people of God, the apple of his eye, it refines, it purifies Number two, keep on rejoicing because your suffering as a Christian is an evidence of your union with Christ. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, not just your own, but the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. In other words, your sufferings 
in the path of obedience with Jesus as your friend, your savior, your supporter. When you suffer with him there with you, you are not merely suffering alone. You are suffering with Christ and they are his sufferings as well. Joseph's son, some of you know him, know of him, a Romanian pastor who uh, back in the early 80s took up the cause of Christian resistance against Ceausescu, against Ceausescu and uh, made it through. He was exiled and spent some time here and now has gone back. He's working on a doctoral dissertation on martyrdom at the University of Amsterdam right now. I was listening to a tape yesterday that he gave recently and read a little paper, which is kind of a summary of his work on the New Testament theology of suffering and martyrdom. And here's what he said. This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ as his body. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only have the honor to share his sufferings. And so keep on rejoicing in your sufferings, because as you do that, you give evidence that you are one with him and that you share his life and his sufferings. Number three, keep on rejoicing in suffering because it will strengthen your assurance that when he comes in glory, you will be able to rejoice with him in exaltation at that day. Verse 13, at the end of the verse. As you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now notice the logical connection here. Keep on rejoicing so that, in order that, your present rejoicing in suffering is the means to the end that, also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. So there is suffering and joy in and through it now, to the end that you will be fit and ready to rejoice in his glory when he comes. The implication here to me seems to be, if when the test arrives, the ordeal, whatever it is, when the test arrives in our lives or keeps arriving, some of you, for reasons that I, I do not know, seem to bear a disproportionate number of these extraordinary trials, just one after the other. When they come, if we become embittered and angry and resentful at God, we will not be prepared for that day when he comes in glory because the glory in large measure is the glory of the suffering servant. And we're being called in to be with him and like him and bear his sufferings with him as a means to the enjoyment of his glory when he comes. All through the New Testament, indeed in the Old, you see this pattern, first the suffering, then the glory. Chapter 1, verse 11, in this book, they predicted of old first the sufferings of Christ and then the glory. Chapter 5, verse 1 of this book, Peter saying, I was a witness of his sufferings and I will be a participant in his glory. Paul, Romans 8, 17, if we will suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. It's all through the New Testament. First the suffering, then the glory. 
Don't become embittered because if you can rest in Him, if you can against all odds say, in you I find my pleasure alone in this dark night, you will find rising in you a profound assurance that you are being readied for the glory. Number four. Keep on rejoicing in suffering because the spirit of glory and of God is going to rest upon you in the hour of trial. Verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh, this is great. This is so precious to me. What he's saying is, in great distress, there will be great consolation. In great suffering on earth, there will be great support from heaven. If you're like me, and I think ordinary Christians, you say, I don't know if I could bear what is being talked about in this text. I don't know if I could bear the kind of suffering even some in this church bear and if my life were threatened or some awful threat to my family came. I don't know if I could bear it. And the answer to that is, no, you can't bear it. And that's why verse 14 is here. Because when that time comes, you will not have the strength in yourself the spirit of glory and of God will come down. Now, right now, all you can do is trust that. Because if your imagination says to you, I, there's no way in that kind of situation I could risk seeing my children killed. Then trust that the spirit of glory and of God will come down. The spirit of glory and of God will come down. If you say, well, what is that? What's that like? The answer is, you will know when you get there. He keeps his wine in the cellar of suffering. He never serves it with chips on a sunny afternoon. Ever. The king's precious wine is kept in the cellar of suffering you only taste it when you go there, not before. And if you, if you say ahead of time, but I want to taste now to see if it will give me the right swoon to get through the suffering when I get there. He will say, trust me. It's my wine. You trust me. It will do what needs to happen when you get there. I'm sure many of you, especially perhaps older saints among us, think these things about death. What will it be like? What will the last week be like? What will the last year of my life be like? I preached a sermon on this text 13 years ago called, Jesus Will Help You Die. And I believe verse 14 teaches that. A spirit of glory and of God will come. 
And please don't be too nitpicky and say, no, no, it just says if you're being reproached for Jesus. I know that's what it says. But just think of the principle here. Think of the God behind that word. Think of the point of his saying that and why at that moment we need a spirit of glory and of God upon us. It's because at that moment we're at our extremities. At that moment in this situation, life is at stake. At that moment, you've got a mob crowd against you. And believe me, I've seen some saints die in this church that are dying more difficultly than if they had had a mob against them. Remember Ruth Fast. I was one of the most difficult final six weeks I think I've ever seen in my life, and she was the greatest saint in this church, I think, when I came here 14 years ago. Their tongue dried up like a black cinder, and she had these horrible hallucinations in her bed about demons and about all kinds of horrible sinning and she just cried out for God to take her. Dying is not easy, but there will be a spirit of glory and of God. He came upon her. He met her need as we prayed again and again. Number five, keep on rejoicing because this glorifies God. Verse 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, Christian, let him glorify God. How do you glorify God? It's really not any big complicated deal. You glorify God by having actions and attitudes that show he's glorious to you. More glorious than other things. When you come to suffer, that's the ideal tailor-made time for showing where your treasure is. Because you glorify God most when all the other grounds for satisfaction and happiness begin to fall away. The job may fall away. The health may fall away. The family may fall away. The repute may fall away. All these things that have been so supportive to your happiness. And they're not evil. But as they fall away, you find out where your central treasure really is. And at that moment, if you can maintain a contentedness in God when almost everything or indeed everything falls away, who gets the glory? The treasure gets the glory. The king gets the glory. The satisfier gets the glory and the satisfie gets the joy. Glorify God. When the hour comes. Let me give you a little illustration. It was such a beautiful picture to me of Paul Brandt's mother, this missionary to uh, India. A picture of what a life lived for the glory of God looks like toward the end. She was uh, a missionary. Her husband died when he was 44. She came home to England for a while, went back, served another 23 years, then broke her hip at 67. And... Uh, Got healed in about a year and got back on her feet and she insisted she go back to the mountain villages where she was serving. No other missionary there. And her son said, don't you think some people do retire before they're 80? Wouldn't that be all right? And she said, if I don't go, nobody is there to minister to the people. So I'm going to go. Why should I want to stay here when I can die there as well as here? And so she goes. She died when she was 95. Here's what he wrote about her last years. My mother... For mother, pain was a frequent companion, as was sacrifice. I say it kindly and in love. 
But in old age, mother had little of physical beauty left in her. The rugged conditions combined with the crippling falls and her battles with typhoid and dysentery and malaria had made her a thin, hunched-over old woman. Years of exposure to wind and sun had toughened her facial skin into leather and furrowed it with, with wrinkles as deep and extensive as any I have seen on a human face. Mother knew that as well as, knew that as, well as anyone, for the last 20 years of her life, she refused to keep a mirror in her house. Now, I read that and I thought, ministry without mirrors. Why? Because she's the mirror. She's the mirror. And God is the light and the glory. It became a matter of absolute indifference to her what she looked like. Because what mattered was what she saw in these needy people and what she saw in the glory of God. And she became the link of glory between those two. And when she died, they took her back to bury her in a thin sheet to the ground so that her body would go to the earth there. And the people streamed by the thousands from hundreds of miles around to pay their tribute to the woman who didn't care to look at herself for 20 years. Oh, that in this day of self-absorption, we could minister without mirrors. Wouldn't you just love to be like that? To minister without a mirror in your life, except the resonance of love in other people's faces because of your life. Finally and briefly, Keep on rejoicing because your creator is, is faithful to care for your soul. Verse 19. Therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And I stopped there and I said, Lord, why creator here? Why not savior? Why not redeemer? Why not king? Why not Lord? Why creator? I'm not sure, except that my soul, my soul was created by God. You might argue that my body was the conjunction of an egg and a sperm, and therefore all the raw material of it was already in the universe. But my soul, John Piper, had no existence before January, uh-oh, Got to back up nine months. <laughs> Whatever it was <laughs> that I was conceived. Uh, before I was conceived in 1945. I was a no, I was zero, nothing. And now I am. And I will be forever and ever and ever and ever. And the one who made me, created me for his glory. And he is faithful to that glory. And to all those who live in it and live for it. And therefore, if you're going to entrust yourself to something in the face of death and sickness, entrust yourself to a faithful creator. You know, the suffering that we will experience individually in this church over the next decades will be as, as varied as every person in this room is varied. But one thing we're going to have in common if Jesus waits, we're going to die. We're all going to die. We're going to help each other die. And I just long at this moment in this service that you would reckon with that. It's an awesome thought. Haven't you had it sometimes late at night, early in the morning? What if I died right now? 
and that irrevocable moment of division between body and soul and the soul enters into eternity and there's God and either we're with him forever or we're lost and there is no turning back. It's an awesome thought. It's just incredible to think about and I just pray right now that the Lord would awaken you to the awesomeness of it because you don't get ready. You don't get ready in the last moment. You become hard if you try to wait to get ready. You decide right now, today is the day of salvation, whether or not He will be your treasure or the earth will be your treasure, whether you'll start rejoicing in Him in spite of circumstances or whether you will try to get your pleasure from circumstances and maybe make a quick jump to the lifeboat in the last moment. It will not work. It will not work. I plead with you. Put your treasure in Him. Let Him be your life. Let Him be your light. Let Him be your glory. Let Him carry you as you walk with Him and shine with Him. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope and shine all week long with the glory of the Lord no matter what. And all the people said... Amen.